How do you live a full life? Isn't the life that most of us live either that of an animal, satisfying our base desires, feeding our flesh, our lust and our greed? Or alternatively, if we try to ignore those desires, do we end up living boring, cold, closed, safe lives, obeying the rules, making some money, just waiting to die? Oh man, that was a depressing opening. Sorry about that. Welcome to Chiron, conversations about the past to help make sense of the present. And yes, I am sorry to say that possibly today we might be getting a little bit dark, a little bit introspective, maybe a little melancholy, because today we're diving into two of the big thinkers, the first thinkers really, to take an approach to philosophy called existentialism. And yeah, it can get a bit introspective. It doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, of course, because existentialism doesn't necessarily mean nihilism. But hey, I'm probably getting a bit ahead of myself. Today we're looking at Friedrich Nietzsche and Soren Kierkegaard, two pivotal thinkers of the 19th century who shaped the world we live in today. Two people who saw very similar issues in the world that they inhabited, but who came to two really different conclusions. You might remember in the first episode of this series, we discussed the parable of the madman. And I hinted at the suggestion that Friedrich Nietzsche is not the crazy misanthropic nihilist that he is so often portrayed to be. However, there is a reason for the commonality of this portrayal. It's not completely true, but it's also not completely false. If any one of those three attributes should be rejected, crazy, misanthrope, and nihilist, it is absolutely that of a misanthrope. Nietzsche did not hate humanity. In fact, he loved it. He loved life. However, it was exactly this love of life that drove him to the extreme philosophies that can so easily lead to misanthropy. If you've listened to previous episodes, you'll remember some brief mentions during this series about Nietzsche's conception of the Ubermensch, or the Overman. In the prologue to his book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche has this character, Zarathustra, who's a hermit sage character, make the following proclamation. I teach you the overman. Man is something that shall be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? All beings so far have created something beyond themselves. And do you want to be the ebb of this great flood? and even go back to the beasts rather than overcome man? What is ape to man? A laughingstock or painful embarrassment, and man shall be that to overman, a laughingstock or painful embarrassment. You have made your way from worm to man, and much in you is still worm. Once you were apes, and even now too man is more ape than any ape. The overman is the meaning of the earth. Let your will say, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth. Man is a rope tied between beast and overman, a rope over an abyss. What is great in man is that he is a bridge and not an end. I'm sure you can hear immediately those ideas that we discussed in the transhumanism and uh, that hideous strength episode. The idea here is that man is a rope. Man is a point on an evolutionary journey, and according to Nietzsche, not really a very good point. Man, 
humanity, as it stands, is at something of a low point. In becoming less beast-like, less like apes from which we have evolved, we have developed some sensitivities, some cultural norms and systems and ways of thinking and being. But none of these does justice to our glory, to the potential sitting dormant within humanity. Remember, we are to become gods. We are to become the overman. Nietzsche's beliefs here do not stem from a hatred of humanity, but rather from looking at the current state of humanity and hating that. What he yearns for is authenticity, real life, really dynamically lived. He rejects the lives of repetition and habit and politeness as being barely human. He rails against these social norms which relegate humanity to being even less than apes, for at least the apes have a dynamic acceptance of their nature and live authentically in that, responding to their desires without suppressing who and what they are. In this way, Nietzsche says that we're even more ape than ape, because we're less than what we should be. Nietzsche looks around him and sees a world empty of life. And one of the main causes for this deadening of the human spirit, according to Nietzsche, is religion, particularly Christianity. In fact, he calls himself at various times the Antichrist, because he sees Christ as emblematic of the social and anthropological problem, of lives lived in servitude and simplicity, of caring about the wrong things, and even then, hardly caring about them at all. He sees, it would seem, an acedia of listlessness in the world, of uncaring, lightness and shallowness and pointlessness, and he places the blame squarely at the foot of Christianity, which he disdainfully calls a slave morality. It's interesting to note, though, that he doesn't actually suggest that Jesus himself was the archetype of this. Jesus, in fact, according to Nietzsche, was closer to the ubermensch, the overman, than most because he seemed to write his own rules. He challenged the ethics and the standards of the day and even redefined morality for himself, which is why the religious leaders at the time put him to death. As a potential ubermensch, though, Jesus ultimately fails in Nietzsche's estimation because he does not fix his eyes on this life lived now. Rather, he looks to the next life, a life that Nietzsche, of course, denies the very existence of. And as such, Jesus' overman potential is robbed of its real vitality. But it's not Jesus, but rather the religious figures that established the Christian religion, for example, St. Paul and then the Roman Empire after him, that transformed the dynamism of Jesus into what Nietzsche calls the slave morality of Christianity. This is a religion which, according to Nietzsche, keeps people down. It keeps them small by smothering them with self-loathing and guilt. Guilt about the very things which life is actually all about. All of those elements of our humanity that should be celebrated and embraced. This is why the madman and Zarathustra repeatedly herald the death of God. The belief in God as an authentic reality, a life-altering force, had in Nietzsche's perspective all but evaporated by the 19th century. Due precisely to some of the processes that we've been investigating in this podcast series, that of the gradual diminishment of God in theology and philosophy through ideas such as nominalism, voluntarism, Cartesianism, and most recently for Nietzsche at least, uh, Kantianism, which is the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. 
Due to all of this, plus the scientific revolution and the recent work of Charles Darwin asserting that humanity is not created in the image of God, but is rather the result of natural selection and an evolutionary process, all of these things, combined with a Christian religion that had become emptied of its connection to authentic life, meant that God had, for all intents and purposes, died. And the madman was right in saying that it was we who had killed him, as he stared unblinkingly into the eyes of those assembled in the town square. But you can see in this that Nietzsche, while of course he does not believe in God, believes completely in humanity. For of course, what else is there to believe in? There is no God, and therefore we must be all that we can be. To be any less is death, emptiness, and despair. Nietzsche looked at a world content to live busy but empty lives, feeding their egos and being polite to each other by suppressing all that really made them human, and he hated it. He hated not humanity, but hated the sickness that humanity had inherited, a sickness that put us at odds against ourselves, at war against our own vital instincts. Man, therefore, and when he says man, he means humanity at this point in time, man is something to be overcome. There is more to life than this, and this can hardly even be called a life. God is dead, you have killed him, and you don't realize the magnitude of this reality. You're still living under this slave morality, never daring to be all that you can, never accepting your will as power. We're all controlled by a herd mentality. You know what's really interesting about this? I think when you hear it, potentially, if you're anything like me, you probably agree with it. I, I definitely do agree with this. I agree with statements like, there is more to life than this, and living these lives, these busy little lives, feeding egos and being polite, but suppressing who and what we're really supposed to be. I think that Nietzsche is onto something. His response to all of this, though, is the concept of the Ubermensch. It is the Ubermensch that overcomes and surpasses all of this. And I hope that it is clear again that the, the premise of this series doesn't depend on whether you believe in a literal God or not. The question is not whether there really is a God and how we can overthrow him. It's not in this sense a theological question, but it's an anthropological question. What is humanity? What does the progress of humanity look like? If we agree with Nietzsche with this idea that there is more to life, well, what is this more to life? In order to understand that, we need to understand ourselves. What does the progress of man look like? Well, for Nietzsche, there are a few important elements to this answer. And one of them is to question a pivotal structure that contains and frames the life of humanity the life of an individual person. And this is the structure created by morality. Over the course of his life and in different works, it would appear that Nietzsche disavows all claims of objective morality. However, to call him a thoroughgoing moral relativist would also not be entirely accurate because at times this was exactly one of the concerns that he expressed with where the ignorant acceptance of the death of God by the herd would lead. 
You see, because humanity had always been and continued to be unthinking in their acceptance of the moral beliefs dictated by those in power above them, Nietzsche thought that they would continue to unthinkingly accept and never question, which could only lead to a morality that was blind, stupid, and inconsistent, able to be controlled and manipulated, and in so doing, to continue as slavery. Morality is owned by the most powerful. Morality is owned by the highest bidder. Now, Nietzsche didn't want to deny morality, but going beyond good and evil, he spoke rather to questioning and reasserting, rejecting simplistic black and white ideas of good versus evil, which he saw as a way of just controlling people. An alternative to this, the the herd's slave morality, was what he called a form of aristocratic morality, which rather than setting up good intentions versus evil intentions, it preferred to look at good outcomes versus bad outcomes. You might say it's a little bit more utilitarian or consequentialist an approach to morality. While this second option was apparently better, ultimately, if it was not free to be grounded in the subject and in the subjective will, it would not do. Neither of these two approaches was daring enough to reach out and realize all that humanity could become. We need, Nietzsche claims, free spirits to dare to go beyond good and evil. Nietzsche attacked in particular the ethical philosophy of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant came up with his idea of the categorical imperative. It's best known probably in its basic original expression. Act only according to that maxim, whereby you can, at the same time, will that it should become a universal law. Act in such a way, do the kinds of things that you believe that if you did them it would be good, that it was a universal law. And Nietzsche rejected this completely by saying, virtue, duty, the good in itself, the good with the character of impersonableness and universal validity, chimeras. The very reverse is commanded by the most fundamental laws of maintenance and growth, that everyone devise his own virtue, his own categorical imperative for himself. And so perhaps we can begin to see how Nietzsche can start to be associated with the satanic impulse. What he rejected was virtue, duty, goodness in itself. He rejected the very idea that there was a universal goodness, something that was out there that had a claim on him. What mattered the most, what replaced virtue, was subjectivity. Now, subjectivity means embracing the idea of the self as a subject. It means not seeing oneself as merely an object to be acted upon, a receptacle of culture and tradition, never really acting but only being acted upon. This subjectivity became associated in Nietzsche's thinking as the will to power. All that matters in the end is embracing one's will and asserting it as power, which perhaps we might say is the 19th century version of the satanic impulse, the desire to be God. Now, there's another titan of philosophy who lived and wrote just a little bit before Nietzsche, who had some very similar views 
but which resulted in very different answers. Soren Kierkegaard, or perhaps if I was to be try to be more accurate in my pronunciation, Søren Kierkegaard, but I'm going to say Soren Kierkegaard from now on, was a Danish philosopher who was born in 1813 and died in 1855, when Nietzsche was just an 11-year-old boy. Like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard looked around him at a world in which it very much did seem that God had died. He was surrounded with those living in the herd, just going along, living lives of basic hedonism or pointless servitude. One of his deceptively simplistic statements is, the crowd is untruth. Like Nietzsche, Kierkegaard saw religion and the philosophical obsession with objective truth as a root cause of this despairing excuse for authentic life. And like Nietzsche, he suggested something like a stage of human development that would overcome these issues. The similarities in their questions are important, but their answers diverge from each other significantly. Soren Kierkegaard is thought of as the father of existentialism, a philosophical approach that centres on subjectivity, the single individual, and on human experience, which is an approach obviously shared by Nietzsche. This is their similarity. The difference is found in the fact that where Nietzsche radically rejected the existence of God, Kierkegaard radically embraced it. Soren Kierkegaard was a melancholic, humorous, irritating, introspective, satirical dandy. He wrote prolifically in a very short amount of time, often releasing multiple books simultaneously. These books were mostly released under pseudonyms, with names such as Johannes Climacus, Anticlimacus, Constantine Constantius, and my personal favourite, Hilarious Bookbinder. And were sometimes these books were sometimes even designed to appear compiled by a pseudonymous editor from multiple pseudonymous sources. It's one of these kinds of books, his first major work, called Either Or, that kicked off a particular idea that was continued and elaborated upon in many of his subsequent books. Either Or is ultimately about choice about the fact that one must choose, and that in this choice lies all that makes us human. How we choose, and whether we choose to choose, determines what kind of human, almost what degree of humanity, we will attain. It's comprised of two sections, one by a young man named only the letter A, who is an aesthete, which means someone who enjoys beauty and pleasure, and he he writes kind of a defence for the aestheticism of his life and his choices. And the other section is by someone called Judge William, who writes a series of rebuttals to the claims that are made by A in the first section. In this, we see two of what would soon become Kierkegaard's three stages on life's way. The first is the aesthetic, the second, the ethical, and the third, the religious. The first stage is the aesthetic stage, in which someone does things aimed primarily at bringing pleasure or happiness to themselves. That's the main concern. And therefore, you could probably call it a hedonistic stage. But this sometimes can be a little bit misleading, because hedonism can often be looked down upon as something which is necessarily very kind of base, almost animalistic, feeding basic appetites and existing only to satisfy physical senses. A self-indulgent, eat, drink, and be merry kind of approach to life when what you're eating is KFC and what you're drinking is wine from a bag. 
just have a good time all the time, in the immortal words of Viv Savage. That is, in fact, one of the kinds of aesthetic stage dwellers, a person who lives in the aesthetic stage in a very, very basic hedonistic way. However, there are within the aesthetic stage three different steps. And interestingly, the next step, still within the aesthetic stage, is often mistaken for someone on a completely different playing field, or on a different level to the basic hedonist. This is what Kierkegaard calls the busy man of affairs. Instead of living for the pleasure of the physical senses, the busy man of affairs is living for success in the world. It's still selfish pleasure that is the ultimate end. It's just derived from a different place, like making good business deals or accumulating wealth. And as such, even though it looks more refined and more socially acceptable, it is at its core still the aesthetic life. And then the next step, the the apparently highest level, is what we might call the cultivated sophisticate. Here we replace the KFC and goon for caviar and champagne. And instead of the pleasures of savvy business deals, it's the pleasures of the arts, opera, music, literature. These things are more refined and so they can seem less hedonistic. But again, at the end of the day, if it's still motivated by pleasure, it's still firmly grounded in the aesthetic realm. It's still all geared towards pleasing one's self. I remember the first time I read about these stages, I was really taken aback because it seemed to me that when we've got these three stages taken care of, all within the aesthetic realm, we've got the basic hedonist, the busy man of affairs, the cultivated aristocratic sophisticate. What's left after that? That just seemed to encompass the majority of humanity. These three mini-categories of aestheticism seem to not leave very many people. But of course, Kierkegaard says that there's still two more stages after this. Now, what's revealed across a number of Kierkegaard's works is that life in the aesthetic realm has some serious deficiencies. According to him, and I would argue according to reality, if you've ever experienced this yourself, aestheticism leads quickly to boredom. Because when you're living life-seeking pleasure, it ultimately does not last. And thus, the most immediate reaction is to, of course, go and seek further pleasure. However, Kierkegaard uses famous examples like Caligula, the third emperor of Rome, who literally had everything that he could desire, and still boredom beset him, and and it led him to crazier and more insane and more vicious uh, pursuits of pleasure. At the end of the day, whatever the current pleasure is, it eventually ceases to satisfy. And I would argue we've all been here. Whether it's overindulging in ice cream or playing a new favourite song, just thrashing it to death, listening to it over and over and over again, humans are capable of ruining things for ourselves. Eventually, everything becomes boring. And so Kierkegaard recognises the solution to this problem. If one wants to stay in the aesthetic realm and everything becomes boring, the solution is rotation. As Carrie Perkins puts it, the aesthete constantly rotates the roles, the places, and the people in his life to avoid commitment to any one particular thing or person or role in life. By remaining outside of life as a spectator of life, the aesthete can continually pursue new and different experiences 
of the generalized abstraction of the chosen pleasure and discard them once he becomes bored, moving on to a new one. I really like the way that Perkins puts it, and I chose that quote on purpose because you may have noticed some similar language to a passage I've read before about acedia. Since the world is devoid of thickness, everything becomes a plaything, something to tame, toy with, lead about on a leash, and discard when we have drained its temporary pleasure. And this is what we do, isn't it? I mean, haven't we all been guilty of this? When we get bored, we say, bored now, next. We've convinced ourselves that we have a right to be happy. It's an ill-defined right, but it's even a right that exists in the American Declaration of Independence, the right to the pursuit of happiness. But what a thorny statement this is. We're so easily bored. So one of the things that that can mean is that we move on from, for example, one partner to the next as soon as the inevitable trackies and uggs stage sets into the relationship. When we're no longer captivated and transported by the throes of that initial ecstasy of infatuation, we've now got the opportunity to say, okay, this is no longer satisfying my desire for pleasure right now. It's time to rotate. And out moves one partner and in moves the next. Of course, we've got very grown up and cultivated ways of expressing this. We don't say, bored now, what's next? Instead, we have grander, self-excusing statements like, I just don't love them anymore. We lost the spark. Well, I have a right to be happy. And in the immortally stupid words of Polonius from Shakespeare's Hamlet, I need to be true to myself. And of course, it's not only romantic partners. In fact, I probably chose one of the most extreme examples, but I'm sure you've seen that happen. But we can do this with literally anything. Jobs, full careers or career trajectories, cars, where we live, pets. You know, a puppy's not just for Christmas. Anything can be rotated. But while rotation might be a solution to the boredom, it contains within it a much larger and more existential problem. In this way, the athlete avoids the pains associated with close intimacy and commitment. Of course, he also avoids the pleasures that come with that intimacy and commitment, but those are pleasures that aren't worth the sacrifice. And indeed, they're pleasures that aren't even recognised because nothing is ever allowed to impact that deeply into the aesthete's life. Because there is never any commitment to anything, be it a person, a role, a place, a community, therefore, the aesthete must continually distract himself with a variety of pleasures, experiences, people or careers. And as one might guess, even this solution eventually disintegrates into a cynical apathy and to the aesthete's conclusion that all actions lead to regret. And that is exactly what the aesthete, known only as A in the first part of either or, says. If you marry, you will regret it. If you do not marry, you will also regret it. If you marry or if you do not marry, you will regret both. Laugh at the world's follies, you will regret it. Weep over them, you will also regret it. Believe a girl, you will regret it. If you do not believe her, you will also regret it. If you hang yourself, you will regret it. If you do not hang yourself, you will regret that. If you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. Whether you hang yourself or you do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This, gentlemen, is the sum of all practical wisdom.
The fact is that in trying not to make real decisions, real commitments, the athlete is themselves not real. They're not living in human authenticity. As Carrie Perkins expresses it, the athlete has been merely role-playing up to this point and reveals to no one his true inner self. In fact, he has no true inner self to reveal at this point. The multiple roles are pleasurable distractions for his own narcissistic satisfaction, but are no reflection of a caring or investment in any of these apparent choices. In reality, his inner self is a splintered, fragmented one. Rather than being free of society's dictates as the aesthete thinks he is, he inadequately defines himself by a multiplicity of socially defined roles, all of which are incoherent and complicated in the one person. Stated harshly, his life is a masquerade of role-playing to hide his inner emptiness. Brutal. But you can see the consistency with the various ways that thinkers have defined acedia. In fact, Kierkegaard's description of a despairing refusal to be oneself is a brilliant explanation of the mechanism at the heart of acedia. It's also a brilliant explanation of the satanic impulse. You see, in reaching out in the attempt to become a god, one rejects their actual nature, which is not of a god. Satan experiences this despairing refusal to be himself, and it manifested in attempting to overthrow the throne. So how does one leave the aesthetic realm? Well, in order to do so, the asthete has to do something which seems impossible. They've got to make a leap towards committing to something or someone other than themselves. And they've obviously got to do this without any knowledge or experience of what that may be like. Kierkegaard calls it a leap of faith. Faith that living in the ethical realm will be worth it. Which is a massive leap for someone who has hitherto only lived for their own personal pleasure. They lose their self without any knowledge of what their new self will be. Now this ethical stage is characterized by the commitment that has been made. A commitment to a cause or an individual other than themselves. As such, Marriage is often considered one of the prime examples of life in the ethical stage. And indeed, when you think about it, getting married, saying the words of the vows and really, really meaning it, it could absolutely be thought of as a leap of faith. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, that is a leap of faith. You don't know what's going to come. One of the interesting points that Kierkegaard makes is that in the ethical stage, moral decisions actually emerge. The aesthete hasn't actually even been living in a moral sphere of good and evil. Their decisions, inasmuch as they are their decisions, are morally neutral because they haven't subscribed to a morality. They've, got no, they've made no external commitments and therefore for themselves, they don't hold their actions up to moral scrutiny. This doesn't mean, of course, that they aren't moral agents and that they can't be held accountable for their actions, but the point is that's not the way that they think about their actions. That's, that's not the way that they think about the world. It's the commitment in the ethical stage that plunges an individual into the moral sphere. Quote again from Carrie Perkins. The ethical person now has a genuine, 
and non-fragmented identity, role, and place in life, defined by their commitment to others and self. He or she has now chosen himself, whereas before, in the aesthetic stage, there was no self behind the empty and transient role. So the person in the ethical stage considers the needs of others and community when making decisions. A business person in the ethical stage operates not for the thrill of the deal, selfish gain or social accolades, as in the aesthetic stage, but rather for the benefit of community and society. And the final stage is the religious. And this is a stage that Kierkegaard takes very seriously and which really is quite radical. In one of his later books called Fear and Trembling, he recounts the story of Abraham in his journey up Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. This decision amounts to something that Kierkegaard calls the theological suspension of the ethical. A radical adherence to God, a person living a truly religious experience, will be a knight of faith, someone who has transcended the ethical sphere and who takes seriously the intensity of the presence of a God who created, sustains, and owns all of creation. This knight of faith will be filled with life vitality and joy, living in the moment with God, willing to obey and move beyond the cultural norms and polite sensibilities and even the morality, not just the morality expected of the day, but objective morality, such as the case of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. There is an alternative, however, to the night of faith, and that is what's called the night of infinite resignation. This is still a person in the religious stage and someone who has taken it very, very seriously, but who, in recognizing the complete sovereignty of God, lives a life resigned to commitment to the next life, to the next world. So far less engaged, joyful, or committed to this present life, and therefore presenting a more dour, stale, and forward-looking religious commitment. And so, we see these two perspectives on the same world at the same moment in time, Nietzsche's and Kierkegaard's. Ultimately, both of these men looked at a world of emptiness and despair, but sought different solutions. For Kierkegaard, God is God, and we are not. But he saw around him a tepid and empty adherence to God, through a diluted religion and an obsession with truth, that relegated humans as mere truth-receptive objects. His version of the authentic person is the knight of faith, the Abraham, he that accepts God as God and accepts that he is not. Playing around in the aesthetic realm is for those who have not yet considered God, and as such, have not even considered what they really are. Or perhaps they're like the asthete, A, in either or, and they have considered, and they find emptiness, but they know that if they have done this much thinking, their rotations of pleasures will end in despair. Maybe they've moved to the ethical, but this ethics is grounded upon an arbitrary commitment and is ultimately derived from the kind of slave morality that Nietzsche rejected. There is only one authentic life, a life lived as a knight of faith, meaning one lives passionately and really now in this life, and that their faith has invigorated and filled this life. For Nietzsche, however, this is not an option. There is no God, and therefore the knight of faith has only a faith in himself. There is no one else. Faith only in his will, the will to power. 
This is all that is good in the end. And so the solution is the Ubermensch. Interestingly, you can perhaps see that what Nietzsche does is conflate Kierkegaard's three stages. He does not deny the aesthetic. In fact, he sees this as the life and vitality of humanity. He does not deny the ethical, but rather situates the ethical internally by celebrating and almost authenticating the aesthetic, making it deeper and bolder and stronger, owning the aesthetic and claiming it as ethical itself. And he does not deny the religious, but rather places the self, or we could say humanity itself, at the centre of that religion. And if Kierkegaard believes in this thing called the theological suspension of the ethical, which means theologically putting ethics aside for a moment in a radical obedience to God, well then so too does Nietzsche. But it's only that it is not a God out there that could give commands that might seem to counteract ethical norms, but rather it is the God inside, the God internal, us, humans, become God, that can and in fact should denounce and reclaim the ethical on our own terms. It is the knight of faith in himself who rewrites ethics in his own image and lives the bold and daring aesthetic life. That is the vision of the overman. This Ubermensch will to power ascension to godhood, however, has some intense and horrific side effects. As he writes in Human All Too Human, everything evolved. There are no eternal facts as there are no absolute truths. Nietzsche's philosophy evolved itself over time, and due to his daring free spirit, it meant he had the courage to follow his penetrating and fearless adherence to logic down its inevitable path. The end, the direction of this path, is articulated in his book called The Antichrist. What is good? Whatever augments the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. What is evil? Whatever springs from weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. Not contentment, but more power. Not peace at any price, but war. Not virtue, but efficiency. Virtue in the Renaissance sense. Virtue free of moral acid. The weak and the botched shall perish. First principle of our charity. And one should help them to it. What is more harmful than any vice? Practical sympathy for the botched and the weak. Christianity. It's pretty intense stuff. I would say probably in these statements, you can start to see how Nietzsche's name became entangled with Nazism. Now, it's really important to point out that all evidence suggests that Nietzsche would not have been a Nazi and was not himself an anti-Semite. However, his philosophy can be seen as laying something of a foundation for Adolf Hitler and Nazi Germany to build upon. In particular, the rejection of charity, or, or better put, the actual redefinition of a new form of charity, and that new form of charity being not to help the weak, but to do away with them to ensure that all that is weak and botched perishes. It's certainly suggestive of the horrors of the Holocaust and the systematic murder, not only of millions of Jews, but also through Action T4, hundreds of thousands of mentally and physically disabled people, 
those who, according to the Nazis, were life unworthy of life. So what then do we see in Nietzsche and Kierkegaard? Certainly our question of the satanic impulse of humanity's desire to be God is presented to both of them. Kierkegaard, though, saw the acedia at the heart of a disconnect from reality, this sin of boredom, the despairing refusal to be oneself. He saw the despair of simply rotating pleasures or pointless ethical commitments as what they are, ultimately empty, unless they anchor to a larger meaning, unless they anchor to a real natural hierarchy. In his radical acceptance of subjectivity, Kierkegaard saw God as the ultimate fulfillment of this subjectivity. For Nietzsche, however, for whom there was no God, the desire, in fact the requirement to become gods, was of course the logical answer. But this godhood was one that the world was not prepared for. In destroying God, in rejecting the Platonic, Christian and Kantian understandings of the world, Nietzsche uprooted meaning uprooting even the existence of virtues like charity itself. In an upcoming episode, we'll discuss one of the greatest authors of the last couple of centuries, Dostoevsky, who tackled these ideas in a number of books, including Crime and Punishment and The Brothers Karamazov. This latter book contains the quote, If there's no God and no life beyond the grave, doesn't that mean that men will be allowed to do whatever they want? Which is often misquoted simply as, If there is no God, everything is permitted. The book also contains an awesome scene where one of the brothers has an extended conversation with the devil, so of course it's a must-read for the topic of this series. Ultimately, one of these two existentialists was more correct than the other. Either Kierkegaard's radical religion is closer to reality, or Nietzsche's radical rejection. But in rejecting so much, Nietzsche ends up rejecting the capacity to assert a reality at all. His attack ends up being a retreat, a retreat, to use a phrase that we've used before in this series, a retreat into his own mind. As he wrote in The Dawn of Day, I undertook something that not everyone may undertake. I descended into the depths. I bored into the foundations. And it's a sad reality that Nietzsche did, in fact, descend into the depths. The depths of his own mind, and as such, the depths of madness. His radical subjectivity was so extreme that it was subjectivity without any connection to ultimate reality. For all that exists is will, and because of that, only individual will. On January the 7th of 1889, Nietzsche's closest acquaintance, a guy called Franz Overbeck, arrived in Turin to bring Nietzsche home, and days later, Overbeck reported that Nietzsche was, and I quote, entirely in his deranged world from which in my presence he never emerged again. Quite clear about who I and other people were, he was in darkness about himself. In ever more intense attacks of singing and crashing about on the piano, He came forth with fragments of the world of thought that he had recently inhabited. Sometimes, in a whisper, he produced sentences of wonderful luminosity, but also uttered terrible things about himself as the successor of the now-dead God, the whole performance continually punctuated on the piano. Three years earlier, as Nietzsche had been descending into madness, he had written to Overbeck 
expressing his intolerable loneliness. This is what he wrote. Not a sound reaches me any longer. A land without rain. If only I could give you some idea of my feeling of isolation. Neither among the living nor the dead is there anyone with whom I feel any kinship. This is inexpressibly horrible. These are truly sad words, but when you think about it, they're words that easily could have come out of the mouth of Satan in Paradise Lost or Satan in Dante's Inferno. In asserting that there was no order and no objective value, Nietzsche cut himself off at the knees. He eroded his own platform because of his rejection of natural hierarchy. But this leads us to an important question. Is there an order to the world? Is there a hierarchy? The rejection of such things is understandable. As we've seen, it seems to be human nature to hate the idea of a hierarchical structure in which we exist and over which we have no control. This lies at the heart of the desire to be God. Either there is a structure, a hierarchy, objective value in our world, or there is not. But what is the nature of this hierarchy? And from where might it come? This and much more will be discussed next time on Chiron, conversations about the past to help make sense of the present. Mm-hmm.